Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ, and then to be sanctuary to each other, and express sanctuary to this city. And so, for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. All right, it's good to be with you guys. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to start, actually, I was, I was trying to figure out how to start. Um, there's, there's just so much, you know, there's so much when it comes to the second coming, the end times, um, a lot of misconceptions to kind of clear away. But I wanted to start actually with, with Acts chapter 1, try to connect it a little bit with what you guys talked about last week. I listened in last night and this morning on Tom's message. And um, it was cool because before I, before I actually heard the message, um, I was looking at Acts 1. And you can, um, I don't know if it'll, yeah, beat up there. Uh, well, I'll just read it first. So Acts chapter 1. So obviously Jesus has, he's died, he has been, been raised again, what we celebrated last week, and it says in Acts chapter 1 that he, he appeared to his disciples for 40 days. You know, in his resurrected body, he's appearing, he's disappearing, he's coming and going in this real playful-like way, and he's also teaching them about the kingdom of God for 40 days. And then right before he leaves, it says, uh, let's see, start with... Let's start with verse 6. That's sort of end times-ish, actually. It says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And, uh, and that's actually a big end times concept, is the, the restoration of the kingdom of God in the, the geographical land of Israel. And uh, a lot of times when I, when I hear this, this verse preached, uh, you know, there's disdain for the disciples, like, man, what morons, that they're still focused on this political establishment of a kingdom in geographical Israel. And I think actually the opposite is true. I actually think that the disciples knew their Bibles better than most of us do. <laughs> they actually knew the Old Testament better than we do. And they're actually asking a really informed question based on the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And, 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 and remember, too, they were hanging out with Jesus for 40 days before this. So, so they're not asking as many dumb questions at this point. And Jesus doesn't say, man, you morons, like, just, you know, get over it. I'm not going to overthrow the Romans right now. He says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Basically saying, not yet. And then verse 8, this is what uh, really stuck out to me just even yesterday. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus is, is giving them a, um, a refocus. He's saying, this is what's going to happen right now. This, you know, that's coming. The, the kingdom of God is coming. But what's going to happen right now is the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you're going to be empowered witnesses. 
And, and I was just so grateful for that and just even listening to Tom's message, uh, just the gift of the Holy Spirit and how much we need it for every aspect of walking with Jesus. And so right after this, it says, and this is sort of, uh, this is sort of crazy. Uh, verse 9, it says, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Uh, so this is what we call the ascension. And, and I, I picture the ascension as something, honestly, way more epic than I think we typically do. You know, I, I think maybe I grew up just picturing Jesus, like, on a little cumulus cloud, like, elevator, like, bye, you know, it's like, you know. Um, I think it was something way more glorious, something akin to the cloud and the fire that accompanied Israel in the wilderness, you know, a pillar of cloud. And I mean, they were so awestruck by Jesus ascending into the heavens in this cloud of glory that they just couldn't stop staring at the sky for like, who knows how long. Angels had to come and tell them to stop looking at the sky. And so this was a big thing. Um, And so this, actually, this is all just coming to this verse, really, verses 10 and 11. It says, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so this is, this is our core belief right here. I just think it's, it's said so well in this verse. The same Jesus, the same Jesus who died, rose again, ascended, who would soon pour out the Holy Spirit, the same Jesus is coming back in the same way that he left. And, and by the same way he left, uh, what's meant is that he's going to come back personally, you know, bodily. Um, it's not going to be some kind of spiritual coming. Um, and I'll talk about uh, tonight, I'll, I'll be able to get into some of the nerdy stuff, you know, surrounding the second coming and the different views. That'll be the first session is different views. And, and I'll go over some people who have different views. And there actually is one view that's um, outside of orthodoxy, um, where people believe that Jesus came back spiritually already in the first century. <laughs> and so that's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, he's literally physically going to come back. And other scriptures say that every eye is going to see him. Like, we believe this as Christians. (laughs) This is crazy. Um, So I wanted to start there because there there are different beliefs on on how it's all going to go down. And and that will be really my my second session tonight is uh, my take on what may happen in the end times according to the scripture, how it might look exactly, Jesus coming back personally, literally in the sky, and then what might happen after that? I mean, I don't know if you think about very often what's going to happen after Jesus returns. I mean, are, are we sucked up into the clouds and then we just play harps off in some, you know, disembodied heavenly land somewhere? Because that's not what scripture describes at all, actually. It actually says that when he comes back, he comes back to stay. And, um, and so we'll, we'll talk about some of that. But this is what we believe. It's a... Uh, it's perhaps one of our boldest beliefs as Christians. You know, we believe a lot of bold things. Moses parted the Red Sea. Uh, a virgin conceived. There's a lot of wild things, but we believe that this same Jesus is coming back. And, and we're really excited about it. Or maybe you're not. Maybe you're not excited about it. Um, 
see that segue there? Because this next section is, if you're not excited. It, well, because there's, uh, you know, there's, there's good reason uh, why a lot of us are not excited about, you know, what we call the end times. There's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of baggage around the end times. Um, so personally, I grew up in a real um, dispensational end times kind of church, if you're, if you're familiar with that. Um, you know, left behind, uh, pre-trib rapture. And I remember uh, my earliest memory of even thinking about this concept was a, I think a fifth or a sixth grade Sunday school teacher. And she said that Jesus can come back any second. And so that really just struck me like any second, there's, there's nothing. And just then we're going to be with him in heaven forever. And for the rest of the, the day, I tripped myself out like he'd come back now <laughs> or now you know and then just nothing's gonna matter but then I got exhausted of just trying to you know to think any moment any moment any moment so that was my first experience um but I I myself had uh you know I I again grew up in church um similar to Tom's testimony I just sort of discarded that at some point though in my teenage years was bored with everything um a long story that I won't tell, I, I just had a, a, a supernatural encounter with Jesus. And, and it did involve um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it, and it changed my life. And so that supernatural experience led me to just a, a real hunger for Jesus and just wanting to know him any way that I, that I could. And that hunger for Jesus actually led me back to the Bible, which previously I had thought, this is boring, this is ridiculous. And I also somehow uh, paradoxically thought I knew it, even though I, I didn't read it ever, you know? <laughs> you know how that happens sometimes? We grow up in church, we think we know it. Um, so it led me back to the Bible, and then getting back into the Bible led me back to this idea of Jesus returning, which, you know, here we are again. And that, that sort of started my journey of just, just seeing it in a new light, hearing, in my opinion, better teaching on it than just, he's going to come any second, and that's it. Um, and I began to really just uh, get excited and hopeful for, for what Jesus was going to do at his return, and, and what it's about, and why he's coming. And um, so this is, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know your story. That's part of what I was just, you know, whenever I talk about this, uh, everyone's in such a different place, you know, um, so maybe if you're in, in the older, I'll try not to make too much eye contact when I talk about the older generation. Um, in the older generation, uh, you know, like Gen X or, or Boomer, uh, maybe you watched a little movie called Thief in the Night. Um, I saw some clips, looks like a horror movie. It was about the end times. Um, so a lot of the older generation are like traumatized from the Thief in the Night. Uh, people getting decapitated in the end times. And, um, and so, you know, that's their experience. Uh, there's also a bit of an end times craze in the 1970s, and there were, there were mixed experiences with that. You know, some people were, were like, really got into it in a good way. Uh, other people really got into it like he's coming back soon in the next decade. And then actually what followed was a lot of disillusionment. So, um, and, and really the climax of that was a little pamphlet called 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Um, and so, as you can imagine, uh, that caused a lot of cynicism. And then the much less popular book, 89 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1989. This is real. <laughs> this is absolutely real. Um, 
And so I, I grew up in what I started to call the reaction generation, where instead of uh, an end times craze um, with maybe a little bit of wonky theology, it just was barely ever talked about. Um, yeah, yeah, there were the left behind books, but uh, again, my experience, you know, almost every church that I've ever attended, uh, there's just almost nothing. Um, so this is what I want to do. I want to paint uh, two stereotypes, okay, of how we can approach uh, Jesus' second coming, and I think both of them are bad, okay? Uh, and then I want to, you know, kind of end with like a third way, like a, a better way. So I'm going to tell you a, a tale of two guys, okay? And again, the, remember the point of all of this is just to clear away some of the baggage. Uh, you know, maybe some of you, as soon as Tom started talking about the return of the king, it is winsome as Tom is, maybe some of you started to get really suspicious, like, oh no, it's, it's one of those churches. Okay, so here's the, here's the first way that we can approach this subject. Um, you can, uh, here, here are just some characteristics. You can immerse yourself exclusively in the book of Revelation, and other strange prophetic books like the book of Enoch that are not inspired. Okay, you can do that. Um, you can preoccupy yourself with uh, modern day fulfillments of the book of Revelation, like, you know, say Russian helicopters being the locus of, that was a big thing in the 90s. Uh, you could move to a mountain, stock up on guns, and grow your own organic garden in preparation for the end times. Actually, organic gardening, and that's coming back, so... Um, you could withdraw from society, uh, wait on top of a building with a wedding dress for the return of your bridegroom. That's also happened in history. Uh-huh. <laughs> Maybe some of these things have occurred to you. Um, you can determine and plot to assassinate the Antichrist once he comes on the scene. Um, so really, uh, you know, the, the picture of, of, of guy number one is somebody who's completely irrelevant to society, uh, socially awkward, and just obsessed with the finer details of the end times, okay? Um, And I don't think that's a good way to go about it, (laughs) just to say. um, So these would be the end time fanatics, okay? That's guy number one. Now, guy number two is what I'll call the end time apathetic, Okay, so there's guy number one, end time fanatic, guy number two, the end time apathetic. And, and uh, again, from my experience, this is like 90-10, like 10% of the people I know in the church are like maybe a guy number one, like maybe. I do have a couple friends actually that were in mind as I wrote these characteristics. Um, but you know, the vast majority of the people are, are in, they're with me, they're in the reaction generation. We're, we're just, we don't care, we don't want to think about it. Um, and so the first characteristic of a, of a guy number two is they desperately don't want to be guy number one. That's, that's, uh, that's their overarching motivation, is I just don't want to be like those guys. Uh, they avoid all scriptures on the end times in favor of familiar readings from the Psalms, Proverbs, and more user-friendly portions of the Gospels. Um, they successfully avoid all conversations on the end of the age with one of two statements. First, you can't know the day or the hour, so why try? And number two, it's too hard to understand, so why try? Okay? They would call themselves not a 
just brace yourself for some long academic sounding words. They wouldn't call themselves a pre-millennial, an amillennial, or post-millennial. They are a pan-millennial, meaning it's all going to pan out in the end. And so there's no reason to think about that. They are pan-millennialists, okay? They think that too much speculation on the future is a distraction, and they'd rather focus on the work of the kingdom in the here and now. Uh, Cool, totally relevant to the church and society at large with a focus on present needs, uh, reinterprets all prophetic passages to apply to their own life in the here and now, nothing. Anything future-oriented is the guy number one domain, you know, is the fanatic domain. So it all applies right now. Um, And believes that uh, most end-time events or characteristics are symbolic and they interpret them accordingly. Okay, so these are these are stereotypes. The guy number one, the guy number two. Uh, before um, before I end with a, a better way, like a picture of a third guy, I want to just address some some misconceptions with scripture. So the first one is that by focusing on Jesus coming back, you know, the end times, that it will it, it, that's something that will take away from the gospel. Okay. And what I want to claim today is that the return of the king is a central component of the gospel. All right? So uh, one way we see this is that all through, um, again, this is just giving a broad overview. I can't go through them all. But if you go through the sermons in the book of Acts, most of them have some kind of reference to the return of Jesus in them. This was something that dominated the minds and the thoughts of the early apostles. Um, in 2 Timothy, Paul is exhorting his, his main disciple, Timothy, and when he, he, he gives them this famous charge to preach, you know, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. You know, every preacher I know has that, that scripture memorized. But before that, this is what Paul says. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. And so Paul, talking to his, his mentee, he says, when you preach the word, always keep in mind the return of the king. He's coming back. There's accountability there's an, there's an end to this storyline, right? The, uh, the, the Christian view of history is that it all started with God and that we're all heading back towards God. And, and Paul is saying, always keep this in mind. Um, Hebrews 9.28, there's this cool little uh, summary, I think, of the gospel. And, and it says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Um, one other one is, uh, in, uh, and I don't have it quoted here, but there's, again, there's just tons. I'm just giving a little summary. But in Hebrews 6, uh, the writer talks about uh, his, his, his readers falling into immaturity and, and needing milk now. You know, they can't handle the meat, so they need the milk. And he, he asks them, <coughs> why don't you go back to the original foundations? You've, you've lost your foundations. And he gives six foundations in Hebrews chapter six, verses one and two. And two of the six are 
the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of all things. So two of the six foundations that the writer of Hebrews gives are end time or second coming related. So this is, this is something that should, should constantly be in our minds, that we should be building our faiths upon, not, not avoiding. Okay, so here's another misconception to address, is that if I talk about this, it's too controversial because there's so many different views on it that I'll offend people. And so it's better to just not talk about it, okay? Misconception that it's, it's better to just not speak about it because it's controversial. Um, here, so here's my passage for that. In 2 Thessalonians, which is a letter actually mostly about the return of Jesus, from chapters 1 to 3, the, most of the entire thing. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, he starts to give them some, some signs of the times, some, some events that have to happen before the return of Jesus. And then he pauses in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 5, and he says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you about these things? And it's just a, a total throwaway comment, like, in, in, unless you go back to the book of Acts and you find out how long Paul was actually at the city of Thessalonica planning this church. You would think he was there for a few years if he got around to teaching on the end times, right? He was actually there three weeks. And in the span of three weeks, Paul thought it necessary to give them a pretty sturdy foundation of eschatology, right? It's a big word for just the steady of things to come. So in, in Paul's mind, this is like a primary discipleship strategy, okay? This is like Paul's alpha course, you know? It's like, okay, we'll talk about the person of Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and his return. You know, this is, this is Christianity 101. Um, here's another misconception is that, you know, this kind of goes back to my guy number one idea, is that people who, who think about this a lot, who focus on it, are, are weirdos, and they're irrelevant to the church and, uh, and to society at large. And that may be true, actually, that there are some people that are like that, you know? I found that um, after just God gave me just such a, a love for this subject, um, over the years I've taught on it more and more, and I've noticed that a lot of times that then can attract guy number ones, you know, <laughs> as I teach on it, I just find they end up like showing up to my teachings and seminars. And so, so they're out there for sure, you know. Um, but what I'm saying is that that's not, that's not, we don't have to be that way. And that's not the biblical model at all. That's not the model of the early church. Um, so, so for this one, Hebrews 10 verses 24 through 25, and you can just write these down if you want to look them up later. But this is one of the exhortations of Hebrews. It says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of, of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Okay, so let me talk about this verse from, from back to front. He ends with, as you see the day approaching, do all these things that I just said, okay? So his application to being aware of the nearness of Jesus' return and having this urgency about it 
is not stock up on guns, grow your organic garden, you know, all, you know, get the soup and, you know, all these different things. His application is stir one another, stir one another up in love and good works and keep meeting together. Don't isolate yourself, you know, do the exact opposite. As we see the day getting nearer and nearer, we should be more enmeshed in Christian community. We should be more aware of our need for one another in relationship. Um, so here's one other misconception that, that I'll give is that you have to be super smart to understand what the Bible says about the end times. And, uh, and this is, this is tragic because the, the way it's taught at most seminaries actually does give this impression because the, 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 where they usually start is, okay, now let's talk about all of the, the, the different end time views that the church has held throughout church history. And five minutes in, your head is swimming, swimming with all of the millennial views, pre-trib, post-trib, you know, all these different things, and you just want to quit. And it feels like this, this really is for academics. Like this is really not for every, everyday average Joe believers. And um, again, that, that, it's so sad to me because that's what we have made it. That's not the example of the, the apostles and the early church. This is for every single believer to put their hope in. Titus 2 calls it the, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that word blessed means happy. It's our happy hope. It's our, it's our anchor. You know, if, if we don't have a, a vision for the age to come and we're stuck only with this life, actually, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that we're more to be pitied than all men if our vision is only for this life. Because he was talking to a people that were, they, they knew persecution for their, for their beliefs, and so unlike the message, accept Jesus and everything in your life is going to go fine, really the message that they were living with was accept Jesus and you may have to lose your life in the process. But because of their vision for eternity, it was worth it. And that's part of what we've lost in the Western world. We've, we've tried so hard to be guy number two, you know, the cool guy, and, and, and we've lost a vision for eternity and we've lost a core component of what it means to live for Jesus. And so when suffering comes, we want to throw in the towel. Wait a second. I thought everything was supposed to go amazing. And when it doesn't, it, it, it's not worth it. So we need, that, we need this vision for, for what's to come. Um, and we see how incredibly worth it it is. Because it, it is worth it in the here and now. Um, he is our hope of glory now, and we do have intimacy with him and joy in him now, um, but that really is the frosting on the cake. That's, that's the biblical view, is that, that what we experience of God now in the way of goodness and joy, is the, it's the topper, but the, you know, the meat, the substance is for ages and ages to come, and so, um, yeah, we don't need to be academics. You don't need... Um, you don't need a degree. Uh, you just need a hunger for God and a willingness to, to study what the Bible says about it, a willingness to listen to the next few weeks. of you know that, That's a good starter. Um, I mean, you could come tonight. You could come to the next few Sundays here. I mean, that's, that's a great starting place to just think about these issues and kind of get it into your spirit. 
to, to build your hope up, you know, to strengthen your hope. Um, I, I just have this verse for this one, uh, Matthew 11, where Jesus says, uh, Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26, he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And so quite opposite of the only special academic theologians allowed, you know, that, that mindset, Jesus says, you know what? There are some things that only somebody with childlike faith can receive. Um, and I think that's just how revelation works. Revelation of God and his plan. When we come with a hungry and childlike spirit, he says, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to load you up with revelation and understanding. Okay, so I want to end with uh, a third way um, a th- and a third guy. It's, it's better than being the end time fanatic. Uh, it's better than being the end time apathetic. Uh, so here's a picture of, of guy number three. Okay, guy number three is uh, obsessed with the return of Jesus. Okay, um, he mentions it in almost every single book he writes. Sounds like obsession. Sounds suspicious, sort of like a guy number one, right? Um, he reorders his life around it. He mentions it in conversation frequently. And one of the primary motivations of his life is to, is to work towards seeing this day come as soon as possible. Sounds weird, right? Okay, so here are some more characteristics. Here, here are part of this third guy's resume. Um, the, the books that he's written are our bestsellers, okay, throughout church history. Besides being a successful writer, he's also a church planner. He planted churches all throughout the Middle East. Um, there are hundreds of people who see him as a spiritual father, all right? So you see some pretty amazing impact from this guy. Um, his, besides all of that, besides his best-selling books, besides planting multiple churches and being a spiritual father to hundreds. He has a special passion for unreached people groups. So he's discipling. He's looking towards those who have never heard of the name of Jesus. And to top all of that off, he also operates regularly in the supernatural. Signs and wonders, normal. Healings, deliverances. He, he moves in that. That's just his M.O., He also has a fiery life of prayer, lives in holiness, separation to God. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? (laughs) Paul, I'm talking about Paul. Okay, guy number three is the apostle Paul, okay? Um, When you read the writings of of Paul, he is obsessed with the return of the king. And and so he's so far from a guy number one or a guy number two. uh, His impact is just... Incredible, obviously. Um, And at the same time, his head was in the clouds. And I say that provocatively because we use that as an insult, (laughs) you know? Uh, His head's in the clouds, you know? Uh, His head was in the clouds. Like, he he longed for that day. Um, And so I want to give this quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity... He said, this means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. 
It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And then here, here's, here's classic C.S. Lewis, just cleverness. He says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. And this is just the, the power of a perspective of, of fixating on the return of Jesus. If you, if you pursue this, you know, in a biblical guy number three kind of, you know, not that you have to plant churches or, you know, write best-selling books. Like, obviously, that's not what I'm saying. Um, if you pursue this in that kind of way, I guarantee you that it will fan the flames of your love for the person of Jesus Christ. That's my, that's my personal testimony. Um, verse number one of the book of Revelation, the weird book of the New Testament, it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation, the Greek word is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis does not mean uh, the world ending by nukes, you know, or, or some whatever uh, apocalypse, like what, what we've made that word. Apocalypsis just means unveiling, a curtain being pulled back. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so and as you read the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation, you see him more. You see him in new ways. Uh, I mean, if, you, if you're wanting, uh, I know I've given a lot of scriptures, but if you're wanting a place to start, just look at Revelation chapter 19. It's the, it's the, the famous last battle between Jesus and, and the beast character of, of Revelation. And I was reading it uh, recently, and I was frustrated at how little details the chapter gives about the battle. What I realized is that it spends the whole first half of the storyline describing the warrior king who's coming onto the scene. And I thought, well, maybe that's the point. Maybe that's why it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. <laughs> it, it, it does go kind of low on juicy details, you know? And, I, and I'm not uh, opposed to knowing the details. Like, I, I'm all about it. I think it's all part of this glorious storyline that stirs our faith. Um, but I was just marveling at how line after line, you know, it talks about him as the warrior the judge, the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Uh, it's just magnificent. It just, it just makes you want to worship. Um, so, yeah, let's, I'll just end with that. Um, just, or just really, again, this is just an introduction to kind of get you, whet your appetite for tonight if you come or just the next few Sundays, that this is something that uh, is really important. Really, really, it makes a difference when you focus on it. it. Really changes us in a good way. So, yeah, when we just pray and end it. Oh, great, cool. Yeah, I ask that you would do this inside of us, Lord. Do this inside of us. Give us a love for your appearing. Break off the hindrances. Break off the lies and misconceptions. And as we do it, Lord, just reveal your son to us. Increase worship in Sanctuary Church, God. I pray that, that, our, that the worship of this group of people would just deepen and widen in the days to come as they study this. And we love you, God. And we say just, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.